Support your local, starting with Space Smoke Shop, located on 125 East Pennington Street, Tucson, Arizona. Space Smoke Shop features local glass, cheap tobacco, and any drink you can think of. We'll also have a hookah lounge and a venue. Like us on Facebook to keep up with shows, deals, and products. Don't forget, every second and fourth Tuesday is Punk Rock Tuesday at Space Smoke Shop, 125 East Pennington Street, located in downtown Tucson, Arizona. And be sure to tell them that you heard about them on the GMR podcast. GMR, you're listening to the GMR podcast. You can hear my show on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Download the free app today. Listen anytime, anywhere. Create custom playlists. Rate and review my show on Stitcher. And over 4 million car dashboards. On demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. Stream your favorite podcasts. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. GMR. 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 There's a Dorito on the floor. There's a Dorito on the floor. There's a Dorito on the floor. That's a good. That's a good way to start, as any. That's the name of the episode. <laughs> non sequiturs, where we just jump in and feel like the conversations over going up on. Up the Dorito. It has been. There's a Dorito on the floor. Not, not anymore. GMR podcast show seventy five. Ah, fuck. It's crazy, <laughs> man. I'm Marty Catola, as always. Uh, Gene Mott. And I'm Ray Daniel. Ray's I'm back. Here. Wow. It's crazy. We had to come all the way to Phoenix to get him. <laughs> get to make a podcast with you guys. So I'm honored. We're at Phoenix Comic Con 2014 right now. And we do have special guests drinking beverage off to the side. That would, be, that would be me, Cliff Campbell. First appearance, took 75 shows. We still got Gatorade. We st- yeah, we we'll <laughs> still have Gatorade. Not might I, got might I add the infamous right. Cliff Campbell? The infamous. The infamous Cliff Campbell. Campbell. Drank the last Gatorade. That's why I'm infamous. It's a it's a fruit punch, though, right? Mm-hmm. I hate fruit punch, so that's good. It worked out for me. Remember when Gatorade was just orange or yellow? Gatorade? Yeah. <laughs> it it wasn't the original flavors. Gatorade lemon lime? Yes. I'm pretty sure it was, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the best Gatorade myself. Although I did, I did have a thing for melon for a while. Melon, melon. Well, yeah. I liked lemon ice when they oh, made. I, that. I well, 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 Paul had liked the cucumber one. Oh, I thought it was disgusting. I had, yeah, Paul I loved that. That's day. Japanese what is he thing. British? <laughs> That's gross. British cucumber, too. cucumber and lime. Ugh. I was going to do something on a podcast a few weeks ago Cooking about that. Show? No, my my, my review of the lemon lime. Well, well, remember we Gatorade. saw in Japan they have cucumber Pepsi. Yes, they did for oh. a while. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like the Fanta thing, where you know there's black currant Fanta and all these crazy different flavors so of Fanta. That, yeah, across the country, or across the world. I mean, and then how about the Kit Kat with wasabi sauce? Ew. So what? In Japan, Wikipedia in the middle of the night. You learn strange things. <laughs> oh, no, no. Uh huh. So I was thinking when I was in the bathroom, it would be funny if we uh, we did a podcast 
and we didn't talk about Comic Con at all. Like we so built, far, we have we built it up for you know, six months, like eighteen months, you know, eighteen well, months to Comic Con, nineteen. We just don't even. And then we're like, Psh, all right, so let's talk about Gatorade for six hours. <laughs> Do you know why it's called Gatorade? Nah, because the Florida team, there you go. the Gators, the Gators. Well, you know, I have a preference for Powerade. Well, oh, sports. I remember that. It was thing. carbonated, carbonated Gatorade. Carbonated Gatorade. Uh, that didn't work. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I do How not. does your body absorb that quickly? Oh, but that was so good. It was so good. <laughs> Tucson yeah. seems to be a testing ground for a lot of weird. I think we are. Foods. Waterfinger milk. Yeah. That's what that was. Yeah. Well, take it down to take it down there to the south next to the border. I mean, the, a few babies born with extra heads. Nobody's going to say. Well, anything. Tucson was in the running for the Amazon for that drone <laughs> program, where Amazon, where you order something on Amazon and oh, it cuts oh, your head But Tucson didn't make the cut. Tucson didn't make the cut. That's awesome. I can't. Wait. That would have been awesome. Man. Flies in the window. Mm-hmm. Flies out. Uh huh. Flies off. Took my child with you. I'm suing you, Amazon. Took it as payment. <laughs> there's a dork. <laughs> you was fourteen. There's a dork. There's a drone. <laughs> and then pe- parents will tell their kid that the drone brings the babies instead of the store. Or the drone will become the new boogeyman. You know. Better better Just, watch it. I'll, I'll have UPS send the drone to take uh, you away. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good science fiction story you there. Know somebody's going to tell their kid that. Oh, yeah. Threats of the 21st century. Not your own, the drone. The drones. Don't make me call Amazon. <laughs> no, don't make me call it Raytheon. What are you doing? I'm getting on UPS's website right now. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, Jane saw Bob tonight. Oh, yeah. Brian Posehn tonight. Well, I thought we're going to see live podcasts after this. Education. We're covering the whole Kevin Smith live podcast tonight. Pretty much. Yep, yeah. You've never heard Education, right? Uh, I think I may have heard one episode. It wasn't my cup of tea. It's basically Kevin Smith gets super baked, and the other guy tries oh, to talk about science. It's totally different than every other Kevin Smith well, episode. Well, this one, this one. <laughs> you mean the sober one? This one, every time the other dude says anything, he just goes off for fucking 20 minutes. So the show, if he didn't do that, would take about 15 minutes, you know? <laughs> Instead, they stretch it to about an hour and a half. One of the One of the... One of the edumacate, one of the it was it's like MythBusters. They were they were they were questioning whether uh, secondhand you could get secondhand high. So Andy McElfrish took a drug test and found that indeed he was secondhand high or had enough in his system to turn <laughs> up positive. Wow! And there's going to be a live edumacate experiment tonight. I don't know what that's going to be. A live experiment. Yeah, the first live show they did, they wanted Jason Mewes to eat a pound of sugar, but they they realized that maybe that could hurt him. Right. So he had instead they had uh, <laughs> tried to make him have a eat a pound of those little white donuts. Oh. Because he loves those donuts, but but he found himself unable to do it because he couldn't drink any milk or anything with it. Because the idea was, if you eat a pound of food, will you gain a pound? <laughs> and in fact, he had not gained a pound. It was. I don't think he could actually finish the pounder, but so it was a pretty fucked experiment. Actually. So, so they have the skinny dude eat the pound of food, and the fat guy talk about it, rather than have the fat guy eat it and the skinny guy talk about yeah. it. Yeah, because you gotta wonder if Smith would have had a problem getting through a pound of donuts. 
<laughs> I, I have to say, probably the probability of him succeeding is much higher. If I remember correctly, I remember Kevin Smith said that he's my bitch. Jason Mewes is my bitch, and I'm his pimp. <laughs> Here, bitch, eat a pound of white donuts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at CVS. I mean, their best podcast are the drunk stories. So. Oh. Also, I walked about a mile yesterday, according to my pedometer. Oh, my feet still fucking hurt. And my knees are, are fucking shot. Took me like an hour, hour or so just to fucking be able to fall asleep because my fucking knees were aching too much. And I, I didn't want to ask. I forgot to ask Marty if I could have a, a Tylenol. That would have kept you up. Oh, they got the ca- Yeah, they got caffeine in them. Well, fuck. That's probably why you took so long to fall asleep. Plus, I drank about 16 Mountain Dews. We mountain do Jews. seem to have a lot of Mountain Dew. I just slammed one right now because I'm fucking I pretty think, burnt. Well, I, think, I think the starting count was 72 cans you know what? for four people in three days. Well, here's the thing. I'm not a really big Mountain Dew person, but I <laughs> bought it for all of us. Thinking, okay, uh, caffeine rush. And then last Friday, Gina and I did Costco run, so... And I did a Safeway run. We, we bought, bought the same stuff. We bought a <laughs> case and a half. A Mountain Dew alone and green Mountain Dew. Maybe a case of Coca Cola. Did you bring the Coca Cola? Yes. And I went Mountain Dew crazy. I got Baja and Throwback yeah. and Baja in a can. Always. I was excited about the idea of Baja when you get when you're like Taco Bell and you get it once in a while. It's like a special treat. The lime goes with but the food. It's not that great. I don't recommend it first thing in the morning. Oh no, it's not a, a wake up beverage. That's, That's why I drink coffee. <laughs> I went to Circle K the other day. I don't know if you guys have Circle K. Believe me, I have tried to do caffeine wake up. What's your Smart water. Right now, it's a lot of smart drink. On cues, we get a lot of on cue expresses, which are these. They go in and basically knock out the Seven Eleven, and then they knock out the business next to it and build this massive. It's it's the biggest freaking gas station you've ever seen. It's like 12 pumps, and then a. Frickin', the, the store itself is just, they got like frozen yogurt section with 18 different kinds of frozen yogurt and toppings, and then they got a, you know, 18,000 feet of gleaming, you know, refrigerator yeah. cases. And Sounds like QT. It's just ridiculous. And every, and then they've got, you know, there's a bank of rollers with every kind of hot dog and taquito rolling for you to. That does sound like the QT. Yeah, um, it's ridiculous. Probably kind of a similar business model. Uh, similar concept. I remember when you told me about Redbox. And you said these things are going to take over everything, and we didn't have any out I told there you. yet. Yeah, I was. I was that, at that point. I was looking to buy a couple. I just could not get into the investment early enough. I couldn't get to the, the people. And how much? How much would that run for one? I, machine? I don't. If I remember correctly, at the time it was like eight to ten grand for a machine. One machine. And then you got to stock it with video. Yeah, you you do the stock. Yeah, you do the stock. Uh, I've seen people do that. I had just put our movies in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing, no. The Pondo Red Box. You <laughs> Yeah, you make some money. Off that, you get your money back. Well, it kind of died down the red box yeah. frenzy. Well, it, but it was, I knew, I knew it was going to be enough to kill Blockbuster. Oh. Blockbuster was just on the cusp and was ready to, ready to go down, and red boxes were and, and that would get tipped it over. But the unfortunate thing is, it took down a lot of the independent guys too, who had. You know, like there was a guy in my town, hometown who had a really excellent movie selection, DVD selection. Well, that was a good Now, story. he didn't have. Five copies of everything, so every now and then you'd have to, you know, you'd have to go in and look for it and see if it was on the shelf. But if it was there, you could get some really decent stuff. And, and that's a that's a rare pastime going into a store and grabbing a video because most kids nowadays, 
You uh, you ran it till the bitter end at your blockbuster. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Until eventually they went away. <laughs> but that's how I got. Ray, we're not renting you any more movies. We're closed. You know, everybody we're on the main bases. Call some videos in town. Well, we have a we have a, a little chain that survived called Family Video, and oh. apparently they've got about. 800, 600 to 800 stores nationwide. They're mainly Midwest. Um, we've got three of them in town, and they're pretty good. I mean, they're they're uh, they're basically they're throwing coupons at you to get you to come in and rent movies. You know, here's two dollars off on Thursdays, and your first month is half off of every rental because you're a new member. And I mean, they're that, they're a dying breed. Yeah. Video, but they have the, they have all the new the new Blu-rays and all that thing. But I mean, they. You know they've they've cornered the market. That's it. If you want to go get a, a movie in town, and you don't want to go to Redbox. You're going to Family Video. That's it. There's nowhere else to get one. I've seen a couple. Have you guys seen the Blockbuster machine? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Couple Dude, they're a piece of crap. Yeah, they're a piece of crap. The late fees are awful. Sometimes they won't accept your DVD. You have to go to another machine, oh. and it's horrible. It's worse than Redbox. Redbox, I never had a problem with. But the Blockbuster kiosk, I always had a problem with it. They charged me $4 on my overdraft. And I'm like, why are you charging me? I'm like, it's, it was such a mess. It was such, such a mess. Such a mess. I saw my first Thanos. It was, he looked all right, I guess. Yeah. He had his little Infinity Gauntlet on. It's a hard costume to pull off, I think. Was it Josh Brolin himself? I've seen more skinny Deadpools. Oh, I've seen so Dead many hundred pound Deadpool's man. It's basically Green Man, the red suit. Yeah. I, I saw there was a guy. There's one place <laughs> where they're just selling the hoods. So, well, I saw one Spider-Man holding a sign saying, "Saying down with Wolverine." No, I saw that. <laughs> it reminds me of when the you gave out those space chimps masks and everybody in the oh mall was wearing space chimps masks and they didn't like that. No, so, you well, you know. you, there's a hundred kids running around the mall with wearing monkey masks walking into stores and these stores like think they're going oh to yeah. get robbed, robbed or something. Security, I know, I would have. Security came over and threw a fit and was like, stop passing those masks out. And I'm just writing, like, what? Passing what masks out? Just giving them out right in front of him. Here you go, kid. Take this. Oh, it's promotional man. Well, what else? You know, the, I, had, I had like a thousand of them. They were just sitting in a box, and nobody came to see Space Chimps. And yeah, I'd so what no am I supposed to do with them? Today. Pass them out. <laughs> that's funny, clue. Yeah, you think my time would be better after all these <laughs> seventy-five episodes? Seventy-five. We only did seventy-nine new shows. We're about to eclipse that. That's right. Those were, those were uh, hellish. <laughs> they could be. They were so fucking long to do. Yeah. <laughs> we went into detail about how we ended up playing Old Maid on the air uh, last week. At the card game? <laughs> we were doing Texas Hold'em tournaments before that shit was even on TV. <laughs> old Maid Hold'em uh, tournaments. Well, I like that I wanted, Texas Hold'em zombie version of doing downstairs. I think oh, yeah. it would be cool to do that. Zombie version? It's very Big Bang Theory. I forgot that. We'll talk about, let's talk about the line for that's, Bruce Campbell. That's why I'm here. That's, oh, what, oh. that's what I was... Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the line for Bruce Campbell. We would be at Nathan Fillion right now, but it is so insanely full. At yeah, at tw- at three, what was it? At two thirty, when we're, when they're lining, when they're, they're letting the line in for Bruce Campbell, which was there was no way you were going to get in. Nope. Um, they said if you're waiting for Nathan Fillion, just line up now. And Nathan Fillion's two hours away. And this is the gigantic ballroom. Over That's huge, massive, huh? massive, biggest place ballroom. in the in the house. 
they say in San Diego, if you want to get in those rooms, you got to just get there eight hours for this out. first thing in the morning. That's what this is turning into. Yeah, uh, Dragon Con would be the same. Yeah, way. I have no interest in in. I mean, I, I like actors, and I'm big into certain stuff, but I'm not sitting for six hours. Yeah, I'd rather just go get in an autograph mm-hmm. line, and mm-hmm. you can well, watch I'd the panel go. on YouTube later. And no exactly. shit. <laughs> Thank you, YouTube. I'd rather hang than spend eight hours waiting for somebody. Well, I'd rather walk, honestly, walk that exhibition floor and just check out everybody's yeah. costumes. And there's some of the people here have really gone to the key, the limit to really make their costumes yeah. amazing. There are some amazing costumes here, and then there's some costumes that are really terrible. Of course, but then, you know what? We got to give them credit. Yeah. They're showing up here. You know, they're getting their geek on. So, yeah, the costume I, contest we'll never be able to get into either. They'll be. Yeah, no, ten, no. Yeah. We couldn't even get. Into I did those see last the girl year. that um, I did see the girl that Wallowitz and Kuther Polly had sex with the two hundred pound Sailor Moon. Uh, did you? I did see her. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I did see her. And no dice. No dice. That's the interesting thing. I was I could not find an exhibitor on the floor that sold polyhedrons of any kind. Yep. Not a one. Are you going to go down and talk to these people down on the <clears throat> second I'm not, floor? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Because I didn't see any D&D being played. I saw Pathfinder being played, but I don't... I don't, I don't, I don't know what Pathfinder is. It's, a, it's a kind of a version of D&D. But I don't, I don't play it. Anymore? Said, or did you play it? Never. No, you no, said next year it. you were going to bring your books? Yeah, I think next year I'm just going to bring my books and I'll sit down at one of those tables and just yeah, pull eight, eight or nine people in and just... Yeah, twist them and go. This is what role playing really is. I don't I know what you guys are doing, but let's let me show you. It's old school. Mm-hmm. Thacko. Their only school is the old school. <laughs> What's your Thacko? What's your Thacko? <laughs> <laughs> to hit armor class zero. Thacko. <laughs> Thacko. <laughs> that was what we did before the D twenty system. Yeah, which they really. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a podcast. Be, that's a podcast all in of itself, <laughs> which is that explains to you why we're at. Comic Con. Exactly. The fact that we would even know to have an argument about that. Oh, <laughs> uh, we got the correct room this year. Ah, yeah. <coughs> Balcony's lovely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With a beautiful view. Uh, Cliff figured out how to inflate the air mattress last night. Very intelligent, Cliff. Very smart. MacGyvering with a water bottle and a, and, a, and a blow dryer, and we blew that air mattress up faster than you. Be careful was, trying this yourself. Was, you could melt the thing. It was a Richard Dean Anderson moment. It was. it was, and he was here. We didn't even see him. Like last year, back we don't, five. We don't need to see Bruce Campbell and Nathan Fillion. We had him last night. <laughs> <laughs> we have a guy right here in the hotel room. Nathan Fillion. That's that's how I'm going to say his name from here on out. Nathan Fillion. And we had an impromptu fireworks show last night. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was yeah. 10, 15 minutes of just. Eight successive fireworks. Uh huh. And no glitches. No, no in between stops. No a mountain. Yeah. No, yeah. no intermission. No, just boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. boom. boom, 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 boom for fifteen minutes. Nice look, fucking big, right over here, the baseball field, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, last night when I was seeing the fireworks, it reminded me of me and Marty at Coachella, and we were right in the middle. Of all the five stage, remember the fireworks were going on. Oh, the killers had just and the killers were playing. They set off all those fireworks. uh, They were about as impressive as those. With playing and Amy Winehouse, and it was just a total circus atmosphere. And now it's time for the after show. And we're back. It's the after show. Isn't it amazing how that happens? That that twenty five minutes just. 
freaking flies. Crazy. Really? And now this is the part where we wrap up everything we talk about. We just talked about it. Or we don't have to. We can keep babbling. Uh, the only there are no rules the, yeah, here. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> we've talked about how crowded it is at Comic-Con. It's freaking crowded. Yeah, I was finding shortcuts, but the problem with that is you lose everybody. Yeah. And you know, now we're doing... The people in the yellow shirts like, no, you can't go into that door. You know, ninja about it. Yeah, I would go just now. Ray would go this way on this side of the crowd, and I'd go this way. And Ray's like stops and he's looking for me, and I'm just over here going. <laughs> it's it's that crowded. It's almost impossible to find somebody if you step more than three or four feet away. From we need a giant tether. Yeah. <laughs> or put balloons. Or Whatever happened to our walking talkie idea? Uh, yeah. How about that? If we had balloons on our shirts, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> just a big helium balloon tied to your collar. <laughs> we could just float over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, how about that Halloween costume that when we were kids that had that ball balloon? Oh my God, I remember that. You remember? Blow up the head. Uh huh. And people were walking around with it. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Pink or blue no, or see black? See those down there. I'm gonna ask if I can find one. Oh, red. I'd wear that all weekend. <laughs> I would too, dude. You'd be like, what the fuck is that? It'd be like, it's the last one in existence. Or better yet, these Halloween costumes. Finding the that Halloween costume that used to come in a pink box. Oh, yeah, with a little rubber band. Yes. Plastic face. Right. Oh, the pink <laughs> box. Yes, You pick it, it up, you pick up the box, and it gets an apron and a mask. And that's all it was. Colored pants. Uh huh. And then you can tie it around. And just the picture of uh-huh. the, Darth Vader, and you have Darth Vader. And Centipede, the video game. I was so, <laughs> I was so pissed at my mom for, for my, uh, uh, when I was six years old, she got me the Archie. In that, oh, Archie, nice. and I was like Archie, and even at six, I was like, "Who the fuck wears Archie?" <laughs> really? Yeah, exactly. I went as Beretta one time. Like wow. that. <laughs> I liked Beretta. It was cool. Had his face on the front of it. Beretta. Those were flame retarded. They yes, were. They, they were. Uh huh. <laughs> and they smelled like uh, vinyl. Uh huh. Especially two hours after wearing the mask, oh. you'll be collecting sweat and you'll be like, "Ooh!" Rubber band well, coming into your mask. <laughs> yeah. that mask would wear. The little mouthpiece mouth would wear. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> I don't. I guess that's it. That's all I have to say about costumes. That's fucking funny. <laughs> I haven't seen anybody wearing one of those costumes out there. Nah. I'd be like, I got to get a picture of that. Well, hopefully next year we'll. I'll be. We'll be hard. <laughs> and I'll be Oprah. Because <laughs> that's hard to spell if that's backwards. The, if that's the fact, if you're coming as Oprah, I'm, I'm definitely coming back next year. <laughs> I'm not missing that. Because nobody else is doing it. Everybody wins! I'm show these Look under your chairs, everybody. <laughs> everybody in the, in the auditorium looking under their chairs. <laughs> Oprah Con. Uh, oh, man. And then also I have uh, Sherpa from uh, Entourage, mm-hmm. the Val Kilmer character. The reason it's so hot because, is because usually Comic-Con Phoenix is two weeks early. Or earlier. And it's a little cooler on Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> but Johnny Drama, he's like, I'm going to Phoenix Comic-Con. I'm going to Phoenix Comic-Con. I'm going to Phoenix, Phoenix Comic-Con. Comic-Con. And that episode's like eight years old. Phoenix Comic-Con was still new then. It's he was talking about the Comic-Con of now. Uh-huh. Which means Entourage is set about a decade in the future. Really, huh? There you go. That's what it means. They're doing pickups <laughs> on the movie right now. Are they? Next summer coming up. Viking Quest! 
Viking Quest. We're yelling at in the crowd right now. I saw some guy wearing like Viking <laughs> horns, and I yelled it at him, but he didn't. Because he, he didn't understand. I know. Because nobody but he needs to understand. Nobody watched. Right. Right. He's gonna have to videotape me. Videotape me saying. Victory! I'm gonna do victory at the exhibition hall real loud, and you have to videotape me. What was this character's name? What was Johnny Drama's character? Uh, uh. Oh, uh, to- Tovar? Yeah, where was Tovar born? <laughs> and he didn't know because Turtle Game. Oh, no, yeah! <laughs> His fans were all like, what? How do you. How can you not know where you were born? <laughs> North Umbria. <laughs> I, I, I didn't see nobody dressed as Turtle from Entourage. No, we have not seen that today. Yet. The best yeah. uh, the best one I saw was the uh, the husband and wife who, who dressed up as the uh, the two people from Beetlejuice. The, oh, the yeah, husband that and wife was from Beetlejuice. Good. Oh yeah. And they had the big long he had the big long face and she had the big long face. That was really well done. And there's also a, a couple who are doing the wedding dress and the groom were the zombies. Yeah, they look but they look good. very yeah. well done. Oh, and it's like the zombie the, walk we saw yeah, last they, night where most of the people were just walking no yeah, zombies yeah, yeah I thought you had to be a zombie to be in the zombie walk but apparently not no. but those people really want I think it's a charity thing so they just put any you know uh, if you want to do it but still it almost comes off as like what if you're going to do it put some latex on yeah. your face now Duncan would tell them all how this is how you put the zombie makeup on Duncan yeah Duncan yeah you're 15 years too late and outdated he's ahead of himself that's one of the things I've noticed about Comic Con is while it's inclusive it's almost too inclusive where they're like, oh, you you want to be a zombie, but you don't have anything? Yeah, go ahead. You're a zombie now. These are our... Oh, yeah, yeah. Here's, a, here's a little prosthetic. <laughs> yeah. Here you go. Here you go. Oh, clap it on. Here's a zombie. <laughs> and to think, me and Marty had the original Comic-Con in junior high. Yeah, they all thought we were crazy. Mm-hmm. You all got to stop watching those zombie movies. <laughs> you got to stop writing zombie stories. You should have kept writing zombie stories as well. <laughs> What the moral of that story is. And the moral of the story is don't listen to your teacher. And the Baja Blast is empty, so I guess that means we're done. Common Core Math. Gima. Gima. Hey, thank guys. This is Ray. Call me crazy. Next week will be more of a recap, or we might talk about something completely different. Who knows? Probably should be more well rested by then. I feel fucking. I woke up at 8. I don't know. I woke up at 7 30. Marty, I thought Marty was taking a shower, and I'm like, hey, what, you got up pretty early this morning, and he's like, no. Nope. Nope. <laughs> just used the bathroom and back. went right back <laughs> He didn't even say that. He just said, no, <laughs> and just got right back to bed, and I was like, okay, <laughs> maybe I should try to go back to sleep, but that didn't work. And next, no. I was like, fuck, okay. I still managed to get like nine hours or so. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, I, I, I actually slept in. Yeah. I woke up at 7.30 and I thought, fuck, I slept <laughs> in. I hate sleeping in like that. The fascinating sleeping habits of your podcasting hosts. That's, That's right. right. What will you learn next time? Cause last Comic Con I was up at 5 a.m. and I walked like two miles around downtown with a cup of coffee and a pack of cigarettes. Where did you get to wake up? For more on that, listen to the last year's episode. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for listening to the GMR Podcast, show 75. Cliff did find dice at the Comic-Con eventually. He did find some dice. It took a bit of hunting around the exhibition floor, but victory was achieved. Now stay tuned for the Jean the Alien interviews, making quality film on a tiny budget panel from early Saturday morning, June 7th, 2014, at Phoenix Comic-Con.
First of all, I want to thank you all for coming to Phoenix Comic Con 2014. It's going to be a great day of programming, great day of panels, all sorts of things. You're going to hear this spiel at every panel you go to, so kind of get used to it. Um, so, first of all, um, you can't stand on the walls. The fire marshal is very, very. Um, so you have to sit down, can't stand on the walls. Second of all, cell phones. Everybody has neat cell phone rings. We don't want to hear them during the presentation. So if you can please mute your cell phones, that would be terrific. Uh, this panel is on Zon, the alien interviews. Um, Zon the Alien Interviews is a locally produced web series about a man who claims to be an alien trapped on Earth for thousands of years. How being trapped changes him and his influence on our world. Phoenix Comic Con is happy to have the creative team here today. There's a couple more people who will be coming um, with uh, slides to show and presentations. So what we're going to do is we're going to do the presentation and then have questions at the end. Uh, first, a show of hands, how many have seen the, the, any episode on the web? Oh, right. So most of you kind of know what's going on here already. Let me introduce our panelists. On the far end is Peter Goritz. He is a composer and music director. Peter has been composing music for film for over 14 years and has worked in the music industry since 1990. He has composed and scored music for many films and commercial projects and has toured the United States as a musician. Next to him is Ginger Ferguson. She caters for small movie sets, including Zahn, and also does props and costuming work. Ginger is the caterer for Pulp Gamer Media, the company that does the Bob and Angus show for Mayfair Games, now in its ninth season. On this side of the table is Marty Chitola and Cliff Campbell. Marty and Cliff? Marty. Marty. Marty, Marty and Cliff. Okay. Or Cliff and Sometimes, Cliff. Sometimes Cliff and Marty. Okay. <laughs> uh, they're from Pondo Enterprises, and they have written and produced several feature films, including The Comic Book Diaries, Writing Frenzy, and of course, Zon, The Alien Interviews. Um, Tyrell Good, over Sorry, there, <laughs> working, working the tech as a good co-director, uh, frequently has to do. Uh, he also worked on a lot of the editing on the movie. And then, um, the two executive producers and stars of the show, Robert Linden, he played Zahn, full name Zahn Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt in the show, uh, and came up with the concept and co-executive produced the project. He is also a movie for fight choreographer who leads a movie fight team called Lights Out Cinema Fight Choreography. He's also a stand-up comedian. He choreographed the exciting fight scenes for the show. And then backstage here, uh, in the suit, Eric Schumacher. He's going to be leading the panel today. And he played the role of Agent Kiljoy and Zahn, was co-executive producer for the project. 
He was also the showrunner, on-set producer for most of the series, second unit director, handled the legal issues, as well as marketing for the show. Eric is a managing partner in Picture Arizona LLC, a company based out of Southern Arizona that is working to boost the Arizona film industry and create economic prosperity through entertainment industry. He's also a noted actor and manager of K-Base and Farafina Musiki. Is that right? Okay, Boston, Farafina Musiki. Yeah, close enough. Okay. <laughs> uh, a popular African reggae pop band. So, um, we're still waiting for the tech stuff to get completely set up, but uh, I thought we could start with how the whole project started. So, it, um, Robert, do you want to start with that? Uh, yeah. Okay, so how this project came about was, it was a few years ago, Eric and I had an audition for a superhero movie. Uh, we didn't know each other then, but we both auditioned for the same role. Unfortunately, he got it. Um, but, I thought it was fortunate. <laughs> no, he got the role, but the director kept me on as fight choreographer for the film. And uh, when me and Eric met to go to the film set, it was in Yuma. It was a six-hour drive from here to Yuma. So during that six hours, we did nothing but talk. And I never talk that much. He does. And so <laughs> we were talking and talking on the way to Yuma. Got there, did our movie, and talked all the way back. And uh, I told him... When we got up to Tucson, hey, you know, keep in touch, it's, you know, write something, you know. And I guess he thought I was just another actor saying, let's get together and do something. But I called him up and said, let's do it. And so we got together, put together, like, what, about 40 ideas? Yeah, about 40 different concepts uh, that we were thinking about producing. And uh, um, if I may, we did, we... Uh, uh, when Rob and I work together creatively, um, there's this thing that he does where um, suddenly he'll get this look on his face. It's sort of like this. And, and what that means is one of two things. It either means he's about to say something totally brilliant or that he has really bad gas. This time it was brilliant. And uh, it was, hey, what if we do something like this? Huh? I heard the brilliant gas just now. You heard the brilliant gas just a minute ago. So, uh, usually it's not simultaneous, but I guess it could happen. So uh, essentially uh, what we were attempting to accomplish was uh, originally it was about doing something to help further our own acting careers. But as we started working on it more and more creatively, we realized that we could create something that could become, if we did it right, a focal point through which we could help to promote the careers of other artists, uh, promote nonprofits, uh, and to, uh, uh, generally speaking, sort of gain attention for the Southern Arizona film industry, which we were sort of a part of. And uh, so the idea got bigger and bigger and bigger, and uh, that's when we brought on uh, Marty and Cliff to, uh, to write for us, and, uh, and they further developed the story. But that's kind of the gist of it. And uh, um, are, we, are we pretty close? Okay, so, uh, so we actually have a, a formal presentation to start in just a second here, a little, uh, and, and the, uh, I'm not sure how much you said about the gist of the uh, presentation. Uh, uh, I said that we were going to be doing a presentation and then taking questions later. So. Great, yeah. And so the gist of the presentation that we're going to go through is uh, we have around an hour here, and we're going to very, very quickly uh, give some of uh, the tips and tricks that we have uh, that we've learned and developed uh, to make um, micro-budget independent film and, and make it look better than micro-budget independent film. 
um, and uh, a lot of hard lessons learned along the way, as well as some innovations we came up with to make this show, which is four hours long, the equivalent of two feature films, and uh, was produced on next to nothing uh, by a very dedicated group of people, and uh, has since received uh, critical acclaim from about 17 different sources across the world, which is very nice. So we have 25,000 Facebook fans, um, and it's growing and growing and growing. People do seem to really like it, which we're very happy with because it almost killed us to make it. So, um, so we uh, will also, uh, in the presentation, show you some little clips of the show and stuff as, as, as is appropriate. So we're ready to roll. Okay, ready to roll with the formal presentation. Let's rock and roll. Um, so I think you pretty much already introduced us, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and I sort of. Uh, can we skip a couple of... Yeah, well, what do you want to go to first? I was going to, uh, I think we, everybody's already been introduced, so let's, let's uh, move to... Do you want to start with the concept development? Um, essentially, yeah, let's start with, uh, let's go to the, the strategy. Um, so, uh, it is important to, uh, if you are making any kind of film project, it is extremely important to begin with strategy. Um, you need to know uh, a lot of things. Uh, you need to really plan everything very, very well. If you're doing a large budget film, it's a good idea to plan so that you don't waste your multi-million dollar budget. And if you're doing a small budget film, it's a good idea to plan so that you can actually complete the project. Um, so there are a lot of elements that go into strategizing. And number one is, let's move to this one, knowing who your audience is. So we began this process by asking a question. This was before we actually came up with the concept. Who do we want to reach? What is the audience that we want to target the most? Um, for us, it was an easy answer because we're geeks. We want to target science fiction, fantasy, superhero fans. Um, we know that market well. But everything else that we did and that we do is colored by that question. Who are we making this show for? We don't want to go too outside of what we believe our target fan base will enjoy and what they will tolerate as viewers and as you know, part of that fan base ourselves, we have a pretty good idea of it. So uh, everything else that we did was based on who the audience is and targeting towards that. Um, so we're going to move on to so plot, pool, plan. Let me pass it to Rel. So um, and this is just kind of a, a acronym or, or the three Ps, plot, pool, plan. So plot, um, Plot your story and define your characters. I know Marnie and Cliff are going to talk a little bit about some of this and how to organize this, but this is really important to know what those characters are and to know them well and who they're going to be hitting and what kind of issues that you're wanting to deal with in the series to meet your audience um, and what they're expecting. Um, pull your resources and um, have or know how to get. Like so. We're on a micro budget. We don't have just a ton of money to either create things or um, to go buy things that are already made. Um, so we have to be creative. You know, everybody has weird resources around them. Whether you have a friend that drives around in a hearse and you can somehow like incorporate that because you have access to it, or a building that a friend of yours owns that is unique that you can shoot in. Um, you want to try and grab all the resources that you have, and this is also in the pre-planning process with the scripting, that you can work these things that are unique and would separate your project out um, as unique into the, uh, into the production. And then plan. Those things that you absolutely need to make your concepts work, uh, you want to figure out how to get them if you don't know how to get them already. And 
If there's things in your script and your story that you just are not going to be able to do on your budget, then it's best to do it at the beginning, strategize and write it out of the story. Figure out a, a, a way to get it out instead of trying to do um, something that you're just not capable of that's going to turn out poorly on the screen. Uh, you. Okay, so uh, this is be very brief with this, but this is something in particular a lot of micro-budget filmmakers uh, feel they can't think about, and to some degree you may be right. It is very challenging to deal with legal issues when you don't have money for a lawyer, uh, but it is important at least, at very least, to try to make sure you have some kind of contract in place with people you're working with on every level, uh, to try to investigate what things you may have to deal with from a legal standpoint, try to avoid using other people's copywritten music. A lot of people get in trouble for that. Try to avoid um, naming your project the wrong thing or using, uh, you know, essentially to try to become aware of generally how copyright and trademark law works. Very quick example and then we'll move on. <coughs> Our, the original title for our show was Chronicles of Jean the Alien Interviews. And uh, we were close to launch for the show, and out of the blue, Terrell found a website that had a comic book called Chronicles of Jean. Huh? We could not have anticipated that anyone would have a name, anything remotely like that. So I happened to have a friend who's a trademark attorney who helped a little bit. And uh, um, the long story short is we changed the name shortly before launch. Uh, so it is now Jean the Alien Interviews. <coughs> But literally, even when you think that you've got something that's completely safe, triple check it. Another great example, we used a Rubik's Cube in the show. You would think that would be fine, but I just had a nagging feeling, and I double-checked, and I ended up managing to get the rights to use a Rubik's Cube in the show without any issues from the company that manufactures it. Uh, got to think about all this stuff and, uh, and kind of know the territory, because if you don't, you can end up getting pulled later, and it can just stop your whole process. Um, so pre-production, beginning of the end in mind, um, this is kind of the, the subheading. So we're going to start talking about how to, the nuts and bolts of actually how to start your, your pre-production. And I'm going to hand it over to Marty and Cliff for writer's block. So they're going to talk a little bit about their writing process and how they went about writing the show. Uh, okay, so uh, this was a different writing process for us because we were given, we didn't create the concept, we were given the concept and told, you know, here's some kind of rules that you have to stick in and play within these boundaries. Um, so we started basically with him first, started with his character first, and then we knew they wanted a love interest, so we started with those two characters, started developing them, and, and quickly became aware that we needed to figure out a way if he's going to walk in and turn himself into the NSA, we've got to quickly figure out a way to bring her into the show and get the, the, the chemistry sort of going between them. So that was where we arrived at, well, she's a talk show host or she's a reporter, some sort of interviewer. Um, and then it's a comedy, so okay, let's make it a talk show host, kind of Oprah or Ricky Lake or something like that. Um, and then uh, I think that was, from there we went into Agent Myers, right? Somewhere about that. Yeah. We also uh, figured out a list of all the, uh, this is unique to this program because it's the alien interviews we had a list of all the interview questions. Right. And those questions are usually about something that John had invented in the past. Mm -hmm. So we figured out which question per episode. And yeah. That kind of gave us the outline for the whole series. That's true, yeah. We quickly became more that it might be comedic to, uh, you know, the, the, the black and chicken. He's cooking chicken over the fire and it falls into the fire and he goes, well, I invented black and chicken. Um, 
things like that. So we can use that as sort of a comedic thing to a vehicle um, to move it forward. Um, the characters quickly took a lot on a, kind of a life of their own. Uh, once you once you put them into place and kind of figure out who they are, they start to kind of do what they do. You don't really. I mean, unless you have to sort of force something in, it's really not very hard to go, well, okay, he's this guy, he's doing this, and I know what his eventual end game is, so, you know, I, I figured that out. The most important thing for your characters is to figure out where each one of them is going to end up at the very end. Yeah, you if have you to know your beginning, know where where end. Right, if, you, if you don't know where he's going to be at the end, you, there's no way you're going to be able to get him from here to there. Um, so once we figured that out, the characters quickly took on a life of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, one of the things I wanted to mention, which is wonderful, is to turn something. I've never turned something over that I've written. I've always filmed everything I've written. So to turn it back over to somebody and watch them go, this is great. I'm going to do this with this, and I'm going to do that with that. I don't like this. I'm going to put that out of there. That was fun. It was, uh, it was exhilarating to watch somebody. It was like watching somebody sort of uh, fanfic your material, which was, <laughs> which was a blast. That was a lot of, that was a lot that's of fun. That's an awesome way of putting it. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I think that's, I mean, about it. Cool, cool. Well, yeah, so these guys worked about six months, and uh, we wrote the entire series before actually shooting anything, which is important to, I think, the next point, to it Which? Uh, uh, what are we moving on to? Uh, yeah. Okay, so... Um, finishing the race. Uh, who here watched Lost? Any fans? Okay. Um, who watched Breaking Bad? Anybody? Okay, there's a decisive difference between how both of those series ended. <laughs> um, Breaking Bad, uh, I just actually finished the series myself, but that you could tell. They had five seasons, they knew where they were going, they knew how they wanted to end it, they knew. Probably I wouldn't be surprised if the writer actually had that last image of that series in his mind before he even started. Just like J.K. Rowling, you know, she had that last chapter of the book written before she even started the whole series. This is where I'm ending, now how did I get there? Um, Lost kind of went the opposite way and went more studio route where they started and they kept asking these questions and it just was like, well, we don't know how many seasons we're going to be. So we're just going to keep asking questions. And then all of a sudden, oh, uh, this is the last season. We've got to wrap all this stuff up really quick and, and try and answer these questions that we as writers don't even know how to answer because we just asked them and we're like, we'll figure it out later. So that's really frustrating, obviously, as especially sci-fi fans. We want some sort of a conclusion. We want to know that there was there was an end in mind and that there's going to be a completion and there's going to be emotional payoff that, by the end. That's why we have letter-writing campaigns, because people don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's why and why Veronica Mars is, you know, got a movie and, and why we have Serenity versus, you know, six seasons of Firefly um, is, is because of that reason. And that, obviously, was the studio uh, canceling this show prematurely, but um, that's besides the point. So, how do you do this? Um, the first is, how do you eat an elephant? You break it down. Um, this is extremely important, and the basic concept here is, believe me, no elephants were harmed in the making of this picture. So, um... Well, there was that one. It's kind of an accident. Anyway, please go on. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> Yeah, breaking down your story, knowing what you're asking of the audience. Um, before, when, once we got the script, um, there was several weeks of me as the assistant director as well as the co-director um, going through and literally breaking down everything in the script, every prop, every every and crying and crying. And, yeah, I know. So, so I called, I called Cliff, and I was like, I can't do this. This is not possible. <laughs> but we figured it out. 
So um, breaking everything down by, by scene, by script, what's needed when, and then working out the schedule so that we knew when we asked our actors and our cast to come on this project, we were like, we are shooting from this time to this time. We're shooting it film style. The whole series will be in the can once we're done filming. And then we just have to worry about the post-production team with a few people that are able to operate on a little bit more um, variable of a schedule. Um, but that all came down to being able to tell people when we were starting, when we were finishing, and knowing that we had enough time to get through that schedule. Now, when you're talking about having the whole series done, are you talking about season one or all three? On this one, all three. Many, many series I, I've talked to creators of that they will shoot season by season. So they'll shoot a season, edit it, release it, and then go back and shoot another season. On this one, because we knew we were on a micro budget, we didn't know that we were going to be able to get our cast and crew back um, after long periods of break. We knew we wanted to try. We wanted to complete the series so that when we released it to the public, regardless of where we were in post production, we knew we had the whole thing done, and we would be able to take you to an emotional completion with the series and the characters. Maybe not completely write out the the potential for a sequel but that you would feel like you'd got the full story and that you were okay with where the characters were left at that point. I'd like to add to that as an example. Uh, if you watch the show, a major location is the interrogation room. And the interrogation room we had for three months, and after we were done with it, it was going to be something completely different. So uh, we weren't going to be able to go back there. And as an indie doing very micro-budget projects, that's often the case. You may think you're going to be able to go back somewhere, and then they remodel or whatever because you then can't they shovel. Repaint. Temp yeah, they, they, uh, they repaint they like they did with the, uh, the, 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 the hallways in the NSD. So basically, uh, you know, if you're not shoveling lots of money at people to use their locations, don't, there's no guarantee you'll ever get back there. So we tried to just get it all done and move on to the next location. And if I could interject, budget really affects writing. I mean, uh, if you're if you're working on a micro budget, you want to think you want you got to get tricky. You got to reuse your locations. You know, you'll you'll notice in that if you watch closely in that thing. Of course, the reason we came up with an interview room was we can put him in one room. <laughs> you know, all we have to do is put him in one room, and then we'll do a flashback scene every episode. That's it. We'll have to go to one location. That's it. Well, of course, it got a little more complicated, but um, you'll notice that the fireside scenes, they're all the same fire. You know, you're just moving people around. Right. You know, so we have to kind of get tricky with what we're doing. Let's reuse this. Let's reuse that because we can reuse these locations. We know they're going to be there. They get it all done in a couple of days. So let's, let's see if we can come up with some more ideas. Uh, and again, that, that you know keeps you from having to go out and shoot many, many locations, which affects your budget. Significantly less expensive, the point. Yeah. Which actually brings us to the next point. Efficiency versus art. Um, on micro-budgets, this is definitely something that you have to contend with. And I know I talk to a lot of young writers and directors that get so frustrated because they cannot um, accomplish their grand vision, their... their Star Wars fanfic, you know, episode, uh, you know, recreation with all the lightsaber battles and everything that they want. And this just comes down to what, what is your budget allowing and there's and how much creativity can you have? I honestly will tell you, I love having limitations because I think it stretches my creativity. I have to, I don't have money to throw at problems. I have to figure out a creative way to get around it, either in editing or in writing or in the shot placement. I can't show necessarily a monster straight on, I've got to show it in a more creative way. And we see that done even in the in the um, biggest budget films, Jaws. Jaws was supposed to feature the shark a lot more, but as many of you might know, that shark was not operating right. The robot was not working. And so um, 
he ended up shooting it a lot less, and for that, it ended up creating a lot more drama, a lot more tension, a lot more uh, horrific uh, experience with the shark, because it was scary. You didn't know when it was going to be there, when it wasn't, you only saw it for a flash. You never got to see the whole thing. The Wampa Monster as well. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's always just measuring the two of these. Um, as the AD, also, I tended to start, as soon as something started taking too long, I was like, all right, get rid of the crane, like, bring the camera in here, just sit down and just shoot, like, this, this lock-off shot. And thankfully, Alan, uh, Alan um, Williams, our co-director, um, he was much more wanting to do the creative stuff because he was all in the directing role. I was kind of AD directing. And so we came up with a compromise. We said, okay... Um, for every scene, we're going to try and get one really cool shot. We're going to have one really cool moment per scene, and then we'll take a ton of time to get that one shot right, and then the rest of it we'll just do the coverage. We'll just get the stuff basic back and forth. But that really helped us um, make sure that we had the creativity, we had the art, we really pushed ourselves there, but then also that we were completing our days on time. Anything? Uh, no, no. Okay. Let's skip on that. So I guess you added the whole pregnancy thing for extra sympathy, right? So we might actually believe on your stories. Personally, I would use a puppy. Sometimes. Um, so that kind of actually gives an example of the efficiency versus art. As you can see, we, we really tried to steer away from, because of the, the post-production uh, need to be able to, to have Rob disappear accurately. And even like when you do, it's like, oh, that doesn't look quite right. That doesn't look like it is. So that was creative editing right there, as we just cut away, and within the editing, it just, it rolls. Your, your brain fills in the blanks, and you, okay, he just disappeared, and I don't really know how that happened, I don't know when exactly that happened, I didn't see how that happened, but it happened, and you can just keep going with the story, and you're not focused on the visual effect. Um, this also was supposed to uh, demonstrate, um, it's all fun and games until somebody quits. When you have a micro-budget film, you are not having the money to throw out a cast and crew to keep them motivated. You can't sit there and get into a court battle with Halle Berry for wanting to breach contract and want more money for something. Um, so how do you keep them motivated? Filmmaking is extremely difficult. Um, it's, if many of you have tried short films, you know it gets tense on set. Um, motions are running high, especially when you're getting to the end of a 14-hour day or something. Um, a lot of this just comes down to expectations um, and breaking the, the thing down. How many pages are you actually trying to get through? Do you have time to allow the crew and the cast to, to decompress throughout the day? Make sure you have time for lunch. Um, feed your crew. And if I may, uh, the, the critical thing here and what we tried very hard to do as producers was to create an intentional set culture. Very much like a corporate culture in a corporate environment where you try to create an environment where everybody behaves a certain way and that is the norm. That's the milieu, so to speak. Um, we created an extremely positive set environment. Personally interviewed every single human being who walked on that set to make sure they were a good cultural fit, had the right motivations. And so if somebody was being a, a diva or throwing a hissy fit, they were kind of out of place on our set. People would come to our set and, and, and visit and they'd go, 
wow, you've been working 16 hours and everybody's happy and motivated. How the hell did you do that? And the answer was we were very intentional in, in making a really good environment. And of course, feeding And food, yes. Uh, so, yeah, let's move on to... Uh, we beat the... Uh, yeah, we already kind of talked about scheduling, so yeah, we're going to go to financing. I'm going to keep it super, super fast because we've got to move on to other things, but... Uh, uh, the long story short is financing is extremely complicated, um, and if you're working on a micro-budget, uh, one of the things, if you've never done a film before, you will probably try to go to people and ask them to invest in your film. Um, just be realistic about that. I've had people come to me with, uh, you know, hey, I'd like you to invest in my short film. Okay, how's it going to make money? What? Well, you said ask me to invest, not donate. So that's the conversation you're going to have. Um, <laughs> you know, so uh, unless you're going to friends and family and relatives, and that's a different story. There's Kickstarter. You, many of you probably know about that. It's it's a tough road. Um, we funded on credit cards. <laughs> that's how we got this thing done. Still paying off. So uh, you know, anyway, we'll, there, there's lots more to say about that, but we really do have to move on. So Any legal like, way you can get the money, do it. Legal way, I'll, I'll add moral too. <laughs> Don't be Bernie Madoff. Actually, this wasn't legal. Well, it could be Walter White and just started that club, you know, and how Any legal And I do have to ask, legal way to get would you money. really trust your money to a guy named Madoff? Come on, he's made off with your money? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to invest with that thing. All right, uh, let's move on yet to... All right, so, passing and working with actors. The fun part. Yes. So we had a very we had an like extensive casting process, um, <laughs> and uh, it was quite a challenge. And Rob, you want to talk a little bit about... How that worked, and uh... well, pretty much from the beginning, we want you know with the characters we had in our own heads what we wanted the characters to be like, but you have that one actor actress come in and just blow it away with you know what they think the character should be. So we had to change up our idea on what we wanted other characters to be because of that. But just the, the casting process was, was pretty painful, in, in my opinion. Uh, we had a lot of people come in and audition, um, had them read for us. Um, just, you know, people who you would think that wouldn't fit something, like, just came in and you were like, you know what, I think we can go with this person, you know? Um, somebody, who, you know, we, you get a, a, we put out a call, you know, for a white female or something, and then a Hispanic female comes in to audition for that part, and you're like, well, then maybe we can change it up, you know? Things like that. We had a lot of characters come in, and it, it was pretty fun. We had a what was it? We had a, a theater guy came in and kept saying one phrase over and over that I'm not going to repeat, but it was, it was just funny. Uh, one so. thing I think is important if I may to uh, to state when working with cast, especially mm -hmm. on micro budget, get the most professional actors you possibly yes. can. Um, you know, you're not always going to be able to, to, to do that, but you do want, we, our, our audition process was pretty grueling. We had people come in with a prepared monologue, we had them do a, uh, um, a read from a script that they had five minutes to study as well, and then we asked them to change up their performance multiple times. Uh, you need to know that somebody is going to be flexible enough when the director gives them new direction, and that they can handle under stress, especially when you're doing a large project like this. Um, a lot of people, the reason I'm saying this is a lot of people who are first getting into film are film people. They, they think camera, make good shots, and they don't think about the quality of performance. And when you do that, you can get the most beautiful shots in the world and terrible performance and nobody cares. So make sure that you've, you know, you've really got quality people to the extent that you possibly can and spend the time to work with them, rehearse, uh, read scripts, and so on. Hey, well, make sure that they are... are uh, trained actors, what I mean by trained actors, 
is uh, they come in with a headshot and resume, not, and I kid you not, we had somebody come in with their resume written in crayon, and you just got... <laughs> it was a sign. It, 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 it's not, it's just, not, not that we wouldn't give that person a chance, yeah. but it, it, it says this person may not be very professionally minded, so they may not really know how a set works. They may not know how to be an actor in a professional environment. So. Well, and like attracts like. You know, if you... If you you know, like these guys did, if you set up a professional environment, you're going to attract professional people. You're not, you know, it's, it becomes very obvious. Well, these guys aren't really kidding around, and I'm, I'm not really serious about this. And, you know, um, so like, you know, in my opinion, like attracts like in that matter. Isn't the color of the crayon more of a factor? It was orange. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's very odd. It wasn't even Halloween. It was on yellow paper. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, um, one thing, uh, this is really brief, but um, this is kind of a list and, and uh, hierarchical structure of what a set might look like. Um, on a micro budget, you probably will not be able to get all of these people. However, um, I tend to see a lot of independent filmmakers, and they don't take the time to build a good crew around them. They don't have enough people on set, um, and it ends up being one guy with a camera that's also holding the boom mic, and he looks like a one-man band. Um, you can do that, but it's going to suffer. Like, your, your product is going to suffer. And so um, just really really trying to break it down of who you can get by with um, and who you really need and consider all the positions and really know what your your reaction and your um, your tax for getting through those positions and actually meeting those those things that need to be done on set are. In a fully funded film, this is actually a short list. There's a lot more uh, mm -hmm. than specifically used, but... But again, people should people and equipment should fit basically what you need to get done. So even though you don't have a different person for every one of those boxes, every one of those boxes still needs to get done, mm -hmm. and you have to figure out right. who's going to be doing the most. So I'm figuring, I'm figuring the two of you filled the, had the most hats. Uh, I started to say Terrell had, had many, many hats. Rob did, I did. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, many, many of us played multiple roles, so to speak making the show, but there were areas of responsibility and accountability and delegation and that, like any good organizational structure, you know who the head of that department is and, and you defer to them when need be and, uh, you know, uh, and when you've got good people, they can do it, you know, and, and where you've got somebody who, okay, the boom operator didn't show up this today, so we need somebody, hey, you, uh, quick training session and we'll just, we'll watch you and make sure you're okay and back you up, you know. <laughs> Thankfully, we were in a union show, and so we could actually like move people into different roles, including yeah. I think we even had when they were off or done for the day, uh, some of the actors and actresses stuck around and would like do boom for us or something like that in a pinch. We didn't plan for that, but you know that's the, the benefit of having a really solid and dedicated casting crew. That's important to say. Union projects very different, very uh, you know specific roles that you can. But that's a whole other conversation. Okay, so here's a scene from the show, and then uh, this is leading into our catering props and costumes.
when we were just mentioning about wearing a variety of hats. Um, <coughs> I took care of catering for the entire production, uh, made some of the props and some of the costumes. Um, really quick, when you cater a group of what? We ranged anywhere from 12 to 20? 12 to 30. 12 to 30, 30 people. Guys, yeah. Um, the first thing, especially nowadays, is find out about the food allergies that you'll be catering for. Um, because I currently cater for a set that has a vegan, uh, someone who will eat meat but not anything that has cloves, uh, someone else who's allergic to tomatoes, and one that's allergic to milk. And this is all supposed to be catered without doing individual meals for everyone because we're trying to make it as cost-efficient as possible. So knowing the food allergies that you're dealing with and the budget you have to work with. Uh, one of the advantages to having your set catered is it keeps your actors and your crew on site. Because if you, you, know, you decide that you're going to have your lunch break and it's going to be a half-hour lunch break and the food's there and everybody can eat, that's versus everyone driving off, searching for a place, waiting in line, driving back, Maybe deciding, well, while I'm out at lunch, I will go pick up the dry cleaning and run errands. This helps to keep everybody on the set, which is where you want them. And if you feed them well, um, and when I catered these, you know, I, cre I did most, I did all the cooking. These fellows got to do a lot of the eating. Um, <laughs> it wasn't, you can make up some for the fact that the actors and everybody is at this level basically volunteering. If you're giving them more than like cheese pizza and warm soda, you know, we, I had like gourmet grilled sausages and, and sandwiches and pastas and a variety of foods that were not your typical um, late night drive-in type food. You really, it, by cooking and feeding the crew and the cast makes them feel a little bit more cared for. Uh, that's one of the advantages of catering is the fact that you can go, look what I made you! And then you show up with little cupcakes and cake and, you know, salad, the main course and sides and soda and water and, you know, makes them feel a little better. It makes them feel a little more loved that you're giving them more than, you know, semi-warm Domino's pizza. From a producer standpoint, put some of your budget into catering. It's really yeah. important. It's as you're to not point, them, so it's, you might as well feed them. And, and even and, you know, <laughs> even, and even if you are, you know, if you're on a micro budget, you're not paying a lot. And you know, we had 16 hour days in blazing sun or freezing cold. You've got to keep people happy, and food is a great way to do it. It's and a wonderful thing when your director of photography, who doesn't talk much, is eating a sandwich after working 11 straight hours, and he's going. Mm. That was. You know he's going to work hard the rest of the day. And the price. <laughs> works out that what you would spend on a couple of large pizzas or a trip to Jack in the Box or something which you would think would be faster and possibly cheaper, the, the actual money that you spend on that versus uh, the ingredients that you would spend on making the food actually works out um, where you spend less money on the ingredients and having also a culinary I, was, I am a pastry chef, so you know my skills are kind of, you know, dessert was always big. Um, let's see, props. You learn um, on a micro budget, you know, it'd be nice if you could go down to the, the prop warehouse or order something off of Amazon or one of the, uh, one of the companies that create 
props, but having a micro budget, you really can't. So you learn to make things. Thrift stores are your friends because you can find um, the costuming. Let's see, it's not. Oh, let's see, the 70s look up there. We found all of that at the, the local uh, thrift stores, found, you know, with the big pointy collars and the extremely loud collars and bell bottoms and things like that we could modify. Uh, there's a scene where it's in a Renaissance period and found slacks, you know, repurposed them by like cutting them off, putting the band on, making them blousey looking. Uh, so you learn to repurpose things. It doesn't always have to be uh, something that's brand new from a costume shop. You can kind of look at something and like figure out how to repurpose it. Um, and props. Um, you know, just as a demonstration, for my costume for Comic-Con, I'm a, an ether cartographer uh, for uh, a steampunk idea. And it's like, okay, well, if I make maps, I need a map holder. And I could go down to the local art supply store and get a document holder that's like leather and very cool looking for more than I really need to spend. But what I've got here is basically a mailing tube, fabric that I picked up at a thrift store. They usually sell like fabric scraps a lot of glue and a repurposed um, uh, handbag strap. And voila, map carrier, ooh, that's unique and completely uh, my own. So things like that, looking at a prop that you need and sort of reverse engineering it. Like, okay, if it needs to look like this, if it needs to be a box, okay, I've got a box. Nobody needs to know that this used to be a stationary box that I spray painted and glued gigas on. But it's got, you know, it's working on a small budget, being creative, and trying to, you know, look at things and repurposing a lot of objects. Ginger, also yes. going back to the very beginning, I assume that having the entire script for the entire series before you're even starting shopping also was a really big help. Yes, it having knowing what was going to be needed, um, like in the scenes where Jean is eating in the the kitchen of um, the the secret base. Um, knowing what food we needed to have on hand and things like that. For costuming, it gave lead time, so it's like, okay, we're doing a medieval flashback. All right, I've got like two weeks to find this because that's when it's scheduled to be, sh to be shot. Or like the Chinese gear in the, uh, the China flashback. We had these on hand. I think you had your own, yeah. your own jacket that you wore. Uh, diving into the, the closets of the cast and crew sometimes is very helpful, <laughs> or their parents' closets. Um, but yes, definitely knowing what was needed, you know, gave us a chance to, to hunt these things down or create them. There was a lot of food in this show, too. Yes. I, I don't, I've never written a show with so much where people eat so much. There's so much, like, food fixation on the, in the show. I don't the, know what the it was. The influence of George R. R. Martin on the industry. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was the influence of Rob. One other thing, weird stuff. from a prop and costuming point of view, always have a first aid kit mm. for props. This is things like a sewing kit, uh, tape, uh, contact glue, oh, duct tape, duct tape, you know, they, there's the joke about duct tapes like force is dark on one side, light on the other, and holds the universe together. Yes. <laughs> um, it, a multi-tool of some sort, one of those things that has pliers and a sharp pointy end, and believe it or not, chewing gum can be very useful in holding things together sometimes. Um, I think that's it. Okay, so let's move on to... 
Uh, this is going to be scoring, so Peter's going to kind of talk about his process and scoring the film. The music. Uh, well, first of all, um, it'd probably be important to point out that scoring actually happens <coughs> after the picture's locked. Um, I'm post-production, and uh, I'm not really involved in, in any of the stuff that, that happens, which means I never got to eat any of the good food. And they promised me a pool, and I didn't get it. But it is helpful if, if you're a composer. Well, first of all, it's helpful to, to get a composer. I, I think the most important thing that a lot of people forget is that... <clears throat> The audio and music portion of, of any production is a lot more important than people seem to realize. And it's the kind of thing that you, if you don't realize that, you, only, you, you will realize it when you're watching it. Because you, when you can't hear dialogue, um, that'll kill a movie. And if there's, no, if, if, if there's no music, I mean, unless it's more effective to not have music, that's also going to kind of ruin, you know, a movie. Or if it's, or if it's the wrong uh, music, <clears throat> Lady Hawk, um, you know, you, you really don't... Really? <laughs> All right, we'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if it's not the... If the music doesn't fit the action, you know, that, that's going to be a problem. And, and, and I think with a lot of indies, they tend to not really think about that until the very last minute, and then... They're in panic mode, you know. Oh, we need music for this, and that's when you run into the copywriting issues because, because no, you can't just go on the internet and take, you know, somebody else's score and, and throw it in to your film because if if your film does start to reach an audience, uh, that person will find out. Um, and even even so-called royalty-free music. It, it's it's not really free, and there there's legalities that you, you have to read the fine print. But anyway, once once you've got a composer, um, the next thing is is communicating what it is that you want the music to do, what it is that you're trying to convey, and it's very important that the director or at least one person involved really have a vision for what they want the the movie to say. They don't necessarily have to communicate in musical terms, but they do have to be able to explain what it is that they're trying to get across. And it's, it's a bad idea to assume that, you know, I've, I've run into this, you know, oh, you're the composer, come up with something. Um, I'm kind of a twisted person, you know. <laughs> if, you give me a, if, if you give me a romance scene and you don't tell me that you want it to be romantic, I might turn it into a horror scene musically just because I'm that kind of person, you know? Because you can. So, I mean, I'm being facetious, but, but really you do want to get across. You don't want to just assume that your composer automatically knows what you're thinking. Um, so you want to be able to communicate those things. And of course, other things, you know, come into play, budget and stuff like that. You, you know, you don't have to have a super expensive score it doesn't have to be very complex, necessarily, but it does have to fit, and it is something that you have to think about. You want to show some of the examples, or pretty tight on time? Yeah, we'll, um, we'll just show, the, the first is, 
without uh, the scene without music, and then we're going to show the next scene, which is the same scene but with Peter's score on it. No sound? There's no sound at all? I don't know. I don't notice how that's just not effective without this. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. There was actual dialogue here. No way. Oh, this is the one where you're wigging out, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> oh, he's wigging out now. Yeah. Quite like Peter. Yeah. That, that's why right, because the previous ones did have the music. Change. Well, the idea of this was supposed to be that <laughs> you were going to see a little bit of a scene without music, but with dialogue and sound effects. And then the idea was to show how the music under is, you know, can underscore what's happening and, and, and either really show the audience what they're supposed to be feeling or, or kind of just highlight what, what's going on. And this was a, a dream sort of a dream fantasy sequence where Agent Killjoy uh, starts just losing his mind and imagining throttling uh, John. And my goal, as soon as I saw that, as soon as I saw the scene, I knew I was going to go for something very fantasy-like and a little twisted, which is right up my alley. And, and um, the idea being just to to really underscore the madness that, that this was, I mean, it was being played for laughs in the sense that you as the audience are supposed to laugh at it, but what I was trying to achieve with the music is, 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 is evoke a sense of this guy, is, he's losing his mind, you know, he's not all there. And uh, it did kind of work, but... It was really great. Hopefully, we'll have it online or something so you guys can see it. One of my favorites. Which episode is that? Uh, oh, oh, I mean, we have we have the series online. That, that's uh, season that's one, six. episode six, six, I think. Six okay, all that homework. Is it? Go home. Is it hot? Yeah. Well, anyway, so we, we better move on. Yeah, to... last one is Rob. So yes. thank you. This, should, this should play. Okay, hope so. Yeah. Um, 
putting together a fight scene for a show, it takes a lot of planning and having to know what needs to go where and why are they fighting. So pretty much when I put together a fight, I have to ask myself, okay, so what do my actors know? How can I work with my actors? Uh, um, Eric has a background in martial arts and Terrell has a background in stage combat. It was. And so use those and like, okay, well, let me put that together somehow. And I let me put together a story with the fight. And so um, for those of you who have seen the show, you'll know that in the show they don't like each other at all. <laughs> How would you even guess that? How would you even guess that? And so um, this scene, I was like, okay, well, let me make, let me try and put this fight together where it looks like they're, where Adrian Myers is just really just trying to get David out the way, trying to kill him. And so I did that, and um, I was talking to Terrell. I was like, okay, can you do this? What if we do this with your character? And um, I discussed with my, with my actors, like, what can they do? And I was talking to Eric, you know, what can you do? What do you want to do? And so I took their feedback and put together this fight here. Um, Terrell actually, he came up with a couple of ideas for the fight where you see him jump up and grab the ceiling and kick Eric, that was all Terrell. And I didn't come up with that at all, I had a totally different idea, but that made it awesome. Um, so also when I do fight choreography, I gotta make sure that my actors are safe. And if I feel that something's not gonna be safe, then I'm not gonna have them do it. And um, in this scene here, the, when we were fighting, or when they were fighting, the place we were fighting was, what, over maybe 100 degrees? Yeah, yeah. it was about 105. Six hours shoot. It was really hot, and we kept, you know, doing this shot over and over and over again, and my actors were get, just getting hot and, you know, drained, dehydrated, so... I had to make sure we stopped so this guy can drink water, so Terrell could drink water. You know, I had to make sure that my, my actors are safe. But putting together a fight for a film is not as easy as some people would think. You know, um, it looks easy on film when you see it, but just putting it together. Putting together a fight that looks good on it, film. Yeah. <laughs> it looks good, yeah. It, it's a lot of hard work, it's a lot of dedication, and even if me as a fight choreographer, I get frustrated if something doesn't go right or, you know, I don't, I see a move that I put together that doesn't come out right. I get frustrated, which I probably shouldn't, but I do. But, um, like it says in there, there will be no blood. I make sure there's no blood unless it's fake. <laughs> so, I think that's our presentation. Can we use that as an example of, of Peter's scoring? Because with that, the undertone, you know, the fight itself is you know, a violent and brutal fight, but there's the sort of the strident tone of the music that Peter scored to it, which heightens the, the, the tension. The tension. Except so, I actually have to say that that was actually one of the only musical parts that I did not score. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually that was actually a guest artist, but it's okay <laughs> because my other role. Uh, which I was not planned, but I, I wound up also becoming a kind of a music supervisor because we had guest music, and I would need to choose the guest music. And I actually was going to score that scene, but we had the the artist whose music that we had there. It just worked, and you know, since the composer is the first, the last person usually to to be brought into production. A lot of times you feel like everybody's waiting on you to, you know, okay, get it done. So, you know, they got six months, but that doesn't mean I get six months. 
to, to film it, to, to do music. So in that case, I actually thought the music was so perfect for the scene that rather than, you know, sit down and take another week to, to, to score the scene myself, I just edited the art, the, that artist's music uh, to fit in a way that I thought would work for the scene. So in a way, I kind of co-composed it. We we uh, we had about uh, we invited about twenty different uh, independent musicians from across the country to add music to the show as part of our goal of promoting other artists. So we actually created a separate web page for each of them on our website, and we promote them through Facebook and so on. And poor Peter was given uh, everything from industrial techno music to rap music to country music, and we said, "Here, fit this in the show." Was like, yeah, a lot of country. <laughs> Lots of dancing. Yeah, uh, we have what about three minutes or so for yeah. questions. So, so are there are there any questions from the audience? I know we've been throwing a lot of things at you. It's great to have professionals like this actually coming to Phoenix Comic Con to tell you about the craft and how it was made. Do we have uh, questions for them about you know, the project or what they did or you know how they did something in particular? How much the aftercare? In that. What was the hardest part, dealing with the cat or dealing with the time of money aspect? What, what, the, what was the second part of the question? Uh, the time uh, of money aspect. What was time the hardest money. part, dealing with the actors, or with the time and money aspect of the movie? Well, uh, I, I'm not going to slam our actors, so... <laughs> no, uh, actually, I, I think actually, if I, I think it would be fairly safe to say that our actors were a pretty wonderful crew to work with, generally speaking, incredibly professional. Um, so I think the time and money aspect, from my standpoint, anyway, was was probably the hardest. I mean, we were all working on. Huh? I mean, we were all. We were all I mean, we, you know, again, we make this thing on credit card. I will. T- I, I'm not going to go into extreme detail, but uh, we had our, our wonderful associate, one of our wonderful associate producers, Tina Huerta, did a budget for the show and told us how much the show was going to cost. We made it on about five percent of that budget, uh, and that was all just okay, how do we not spend this money and innovate something else? Uh, but that was very hard. <laughs> it was very, very hard. Um, so I think, you know, if we had had more budget, obviously so many of our problems would have been solved and we would have had to, you know, we could have... Yeah, that was, that was, very, was very difficult. Yeah, yeah. All, a lot of footage. I'll say one thing about the actors, and this wasn't, this wasn't an issue with, with their performance at all, but one of our, our actors was dyslexic. And so for the first week... Uh, she was constantly late because she misread her call time. <laughs> now, that was just, I mean, that was not her fault. There's nothing that she could do to affect that. But that was something where I had to adjust constantly with the new people and, and the, the day players that we had come on the set. Of, I had to quickly figure out how best to communicate. So for her, I would call her the night before the shoot every day, you know, and or the week before, and then call her uh, the, the night before her shoot and verbally tell her what her call time was. That way, I avoided her having to worry about reading it wrong or something like that. I think it's important. I'll kind of chime in on something for because it, it is re- relevant. I think it's very important, especially when you're dealing with indie films, um, because a lot of times you're working with friends, but you still do have to establish a certain amount of hierarchy and establish who does what. Um, one of the early situations that I ran into when I started working with these guys is I actually replaced the original composer that was slated to do it because he had another project. And because I came in so last minute, um, there really wasn't a lot of, 
I, I think they had an idea of what they wanted, but there was stuff, still stuff a lot that wasn't really clear. And when we were working on a theme, I was sending I, I was sending a piece of me, uh, musical ideas to about five different people, and getting five different responses back. And finally, I had to say, look, you guys need to designate one person who's going to be the person that you know filters everything down to me and 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 tells me what you guys want, and then I can give it to that person. And then you know they they can go argue amongst themselves, but you you got to avoid the uh, the too many cooks in the kitchen kind of situation. And, and, and there was a, other situations that I won't get into where a similar thing happened, where a few too many people got involved in the process, and it just bogged it down and slowed it down. So in the end, it wound up just being Terrell and I. And it it, it, it didn't mean that nobody else had it, had a say, but we just kept it as far as our working. Uh, process, we just felt that Terrell, as, as, as one of the co-directors, was the, the ideal person to be the go-between between me and, and, and the production. So once we got that working, and once Terrell and I figured out, you know, how, you know, once we started developing an understanding of each other and our personalities and what each liked and didn't like, it was... It was a lot easier and faster process. But the, the, that theme took almost three weeks. It, it, it actually took longer to do the 30-second intro theme than it did to score almost anything else in, in the production. And that was the reason why, because so many people were going back and forth. Yeah, we're, we're pretty much out of time. Um, do you have any closing thoughts um, or things that you want to definitely get out there? I think, uh, well, I guess... Uh, uh, I just want to say, uh, I apologize for us starting late on the panel. Um, I know for myself and probably Eric, we're going to be outside for a little bit. If you do have any other questions, we'd love to talk to you. We have contact information also if you want to try and contact us later um, by email or on our Facebook page. Um, and we'll try and get answers if you have any specifics or even want to go through scenarios with us. Uh, we'd love to talk to you. So. We are also uh, screening as part of the film festival tomorrow. Uh, we're at the 12.30 to 3 p.m. block, uh, and I'm not sure what episode or episodes are going to show, but uh, we are part of that as well, so we'll be around. Um, and you can, we have some little uh, informational cards so that you can uh, uh, find the show easily if you'd like. And uh, uh, But we're very happy, generally speaking, we did try to be a help to our fellow filmmakers, so if there's something that we've done that we'd like to know how it was done, just feel free to contact us. One last thought. Just, you cannot underestimate the importance of pre-planning. Just plan as many details and for as many um, variations in your original plan as possible, because that will help you in the long run to know Okay, this this is what we're going to do, but if something goes wrong, we've got plan B and work it all the way down to plan W. Okay, that's good. Thank you very much. That's a great thing to that's a great thing to finish this off with. Thank you very much for attending the panel. You can plan work. Thank you very much for the casting Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much, Scott. Scott Leonard. Now that you've heard the panel, head on over to whoisjohn.com and watch the entire series for free. That's whoisjohn.com. W-H-O-I-S-Z-H-O-N.
and we'll catch you next week.